Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I remember when I first moved to Arizona, how my skin and eyes would feel incredibly dry. Yeah. yeah. And it, it almost felt as though this, I could feel each cell of my skin drying out individually. And thinking, well, I need to be more diligent about drinking water. Probably we all need to be more diligent about this. But coming from the humidity of North Carolina, it was a sudden change for my body to adjust to. And now, when I go to humid places, I just feel really damp. <laughs> we live in an arid and dry climate, and so we quickly learn of how important water is to our daily lives. Our city council, it seems, is regularly discussing how much water is available and the effects of various policies have on the water for its citizens. One of the most striking things I noticed when I first moved here was actually Ben explaining to me, well, the shower will get warm very quickly. And it's actually really nice to have this as a water-saving measure, but a little bit surprising at first. It was striking as I traveled around Israel to notice how similar the climate was to Arizona. One day as we drove through the area where this story probably took place, I remember thinking how I might as well be home. I'd have the same view driving through the desert. <laughs> Keeping in mind how dry our land is, we can start to sympathize with the story which we read, read this morning from John's Gospel. We understand what it is like to have walked all day, we might understand, therefore, what it would have been like to have walked all day, being wearied from our journey, how hot the sun is, and how dry the air is. Water for the weary traveler is a necessity. Water plays interesting roles in scripture. As I was reading, one source noted at least three different ways that scripture routinely, routinely uses water imagery. First, water is the source of chaos. Second, is it, a so it is a source of cleansing. And finally, there is, of course, living water. That is, water that brings us to life. I have found this idea that water is the source of chaos as the most interesting of all. The Israelites have never been known for being a seafaring people. And so it is not at all surprising that as a culture they came to that conclusion. In particularly to see the sea as a chaotic force. But this is not a view that's isolated to them. But the ancient Near East often saw this and saw that the gods of water were often viewed as chaotic and even evil. We see this portrayed most vividly in the book of Daniel, where the evil nations rise out of water. And so what Daniel is saying here is that they will come not to worship the living God, to serve the God of order, not the God that we gather together to worship this morning, but those evil nations serve chaos. They serve evil gods, and they will serve themselves. The nations that rise out of water will serve chaos. But likewise, this is why it is significant that in the creation narrative, when God separates water from land, he separates the chaotic from the tameable. 
The seas have often captured the hearts and imaginations of men. Uh, because out of chaos comes a great sense of adventure, a great promise of riches, a great hope for something new, but also great danger. Where I grew up, many went to sea to make their riches, but not everyone came back. More than one childhood acquaintance went to sea to never return. We live in the hubris of thinking that we can tame the sea, but we can just as easily be swept away by it if we do not take care. The sea conjures for us the idea of chaos. As such, we are remembered of how scripture uses the sea to represent that which is untamable. Just as water can give life, so it can rob men of lives. For these reasons, when we see Christ walk on water and calm the storm, it is significant. For we are seeing that Christ has the same authority as the Father, the authority to tame chaos, to tame power. Christ is more powerful than the forces of the world. But water also plays a cleansing role in Scripture. Last week, we talked about St. John the Baptist's role as the baptizer. He led people to water to cleanse them. He baptized people to turn away from sins. But then again, in the Jewish villages throughout Galilee, you can find things that are called baptismal fonts, but also called mikvahs. Don't think about baptismal fonts like what we have at the back of the church. Not like a little bowl in which we pour water over the head of a child or a new convert as an outward sign of Christ's cleansing does in the faithful. No, these were large enough for grown men to walk through, to fully submerge himself, to become totally washed clean. Not only that, but the water was always moving through it. It was not a stagnant pool of water, but running water to wash the symbolic dirtiness of men's sins. Ritual cleansing is a, was a big deal, though it does seem that John the Baptist and his baptism was more than just a ritual cleansing, but a marking of a new way of life, a marking of a turning away of one's sins in repentance, where the mikvah's ritual cleaning had more to simply do with washing away the sin that we gather up as we go through the week. But this morning, we see a third type of water, the most important type of water for the life of the Christian. This morning, we learn of living water, it is no mistake that Jesus withdraws from Judea and makes his way back to Galilee when rumors of his ministry mimicking John, when rumors arise that his ministry mimics John. For baptism and repentance are an important aspect of the Christian life, but St. John the Evangelist wants to show us something different. He wants the reader to see that in Christ is the light and life of humanity that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. St. John the Evangelist wants us to know that unless we have the living water springing up from within us, then we are spiritually dried up. We are spiritually dead, for a human being cannot live without water, nor can we be made alive without the living water of Christ. So, and so it is no mistake that Jesus meets this woman and think for a moment, if we lived 2,000 years ago in a dry place, and if you're ha in a dry place, how important water would be for our survival. <clears throat> Having a source for water would become the primary necessity for existence. 
Without electricity to pump it, the water, the well became a community gathering place for all sorts, for all sorts. In the ancient Near East, it became a place for women to gather, to catch up, and sometimes even in scripture for women to meet a husband. But Jesus meets this woman who is a thorough outcast. In a cultural where ritual purity was important, the intermingling of men and women was deeply frowned upon. Furthermore, she was a Samaritan, and deep distrust between the Jews and the Samaritans existed. It seems, as I read about it, that the prejudice went both ways. Though the Jews seemed to hold more open disdain for the Samaritans, while the, the Samaritans were more vicious in their expression of their hatred. Finally, if we read on, it would seem that the woman was not a woman of virtue and principle, but had known many men and was now cohabitating with a man who wasn't even her husband. She had been married to several men before him. And so we see a Jewish man approach her and ask for a drink. She knows not who this man is, and it would seem that she is deeply confused by her initial reaction, interaction with him. Some commentators hypothesize that the woman sees this interaction as flirtatious, another opportunity to meet a new man, maybe a better man than the one she is with now. Others are appalled by this suggestion. Surely, they say, Jesus wouldn't have been flirted with. Surely, she would have viewed this interaction as innocent. I think this second suggestion is naive, for we all have an internal craving to be known, to be loved, and to find security. We live in a time when the act of truly loving is dying rapidly. We find to stand up for the other, to care for those who are the outcasts, to invest in people may cause an incredible amount of confusion. We see marriages breaking down. We are too afraid to love well and to love sacrificially. We see friendships as disposable. We have culturally lost the art of loving. We have lost the art of loving people, of being communities that care for the souls of others. Certainly, compassion can be a rallying cry for all people alike. But when it comes to caring for those who are outside, those who are not like us, we find it much easier to paint caricatures. When it comes to sitting with those who are hurting and lonely and caring for those who have created for themselves a pit of ministry, we are not all that good at times. We have become Job's friends. We are happy to sit for a little bit, but then say, yes, yes, we know you are hurting. But when it comes to the long journey of healing, to the long road of learning how to love others well, we find ourselves stumbling into legalism. We would prefer to cut off ourselves off. We want to have little communities of perfection where we aren't reminded of the frailty of humanity. But Christ's models for us a radical love for others. We realize in order to love requires a certain amount of a vulnerability. We have trained ourselves never to be vulnerable, for vulnerability is scary. It requires being known and knowing the other's imperfection. It requires seeing ugliness and pretend, not pretending it isn't ugly, but loving the other despite their brokenness. C.S. Lewis penned in his books, The Four, Love, the Fo Four Loves, the following. To love at all is to be vulnerable. 
Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love is to be vulnerable. And here Christ opens himself up to criticism. Later in chapter 4, his disciples are scandalized by how he has interacted with this Samaritan woman. If we were to read on, we would see that even the, at first the woman doesn't understand what's going on. So it is possible that the woman may be flirting with him, for she does not understand love. If we were to read on, we would see how baffled she is. But she only sees men as a place of security, a place of assurance that the world will not crush her any more than it already has. But Christ has something better for her. Christ has something more fulfilling. Christ offers her love, but not only love, love and life. When Christ offers her the water, she is excited, for she thinks, Aha, if I have this water, I won't have to make this journey to the well over and over again. And even here, we get a hint that perhaps she'd cut herself off from a natural place of community, would isolate herself and hide from the world around her. She imagines how much easier her life might be without thirst. How much easier it would be to not have to go to the place where she must be vulnerable, must be ridiculed by others. Not to mention that, but the pure practicality and time-saving benefit of never thirsting again. But it is not the living water that she is offered by Christ. But this is not what the living water is that she is offered by Christ and that we are offered. No, the living water Christ offers her is the source of sustenance of the Christian walk. The water that he offers her is eternal security. It is security in every moment, in everything of life. Think for a moment about what is troubling you. Are you worried about paying your bills? Are you worried about your friends? Are you worried about the health of a loved one? Are you worried about the state of the world? And then ask yourself, are you finding where are you finding your security for these worries? Are you looking for them in others, or are you bringing your troubles to Christ? And this is my confession. Too often I find it easy to let the winds of the world push me around, to let fear grip my heart. But God calls me, God calls us to lean into him in times of trouble and in good times. And here is the promise that Christ is offering the woman and is offering us. If we drink of Christ, if we trust his promise, if we pursue him and him alone, we'll have security in the here and now and in eternity. If we take time to trust Christ completely, if we take time to trust his words are good and true for us, if we take time to believe that Christ is the source of life, the water that keeps us alive and will cleanse us and deliver us into eternity in the king, heavenly kingdom, what can we possibly fear?
What can we possibly be concerned about? What can possibly shake us? Can news of war separate us from the love of God? Can medical concerns separate us from the love of God? Can financial concerns, can anger and the other anger of the other possibly separate us from the love of God? Nothing can dry up the wellspring of God's love for his people. So why do we fear? Of course, this is not a promise of ease. This is not a promise of getting everything that we want and when we want it. But it is a promise that God will be with us no matter what comes our way. A promise that God is sanctifying us. A promise that God is working all things out for our good and his glory. Today, Christ offers a sinful woman a wellspring of life. Christ offers an outcast who has made some unfortunate life choices, the water that makes her alive. And, and likewise, he does the same for us. No matter where we came from, no matter our brokenness, no matter the pain that wells inside our hearts, Christ has offered you living water that you may thirst no more. We come to Christ broken, lost, hurting, we come to Christ with pains and sorrows, with troubles, concerns, and disappointments. And Christ takes them and gives us life in return. Life in the here and now and in eternity. Christ offers us security and offers us a peace which we so long for. So, my friends, let us drink richly of the promises of Christ. For it is there that we find love that we long for. It is there that we are given to strength to love our spouse, our friends, our children. It is there that we are given the strength to love those who are like us and those who are different from us. It is in Christ that we are given security in the face of chaos. It is there that we find the calm amidst the storm. It is there that we find assurance that even if we can't see the end, God will work it out, even the most messiest and wild of situations, all to his glory. It is there in Christ, in his living water, that we find life and the peace that passes all understanding. So let us drink deeply of the living well, that he, we may have life eternal and the joy and security that Christ alone can give us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.